Washington Capitals are the 2018 Stanley Cup champions. It's not a dream. It's not a desert barrage. It's Lord Stanley, and he is coming to Washington. Welcome back to Japers Rink Radio. I'm your host, Greg Young. And today, uh, the Capitals' play has been supersized both in a positive and negative direction. And we have a supersized episode uh, with uh, Adam Stringham and Kevin Klein. So, uh, Kevin, how have you been doing lately? I've been doing well. I've been doing all right out here in Seattle where things are a little bit crazy. And uh, I've been hoping that the Caps could give me some relief from that when I tune in from across the country. Um, and I would have to say that they have, generally speaking, failed to accomplish that other than a nice little reprieve on Saturday against Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Adam, you're joining us from uh, the lovely, warm Houston, Texas, which I think now Texas also has its own coronavirus case. So, uh, you know, how, have, uh, how, how are things been going in the uh, Lone Star State? Uh, things are fine down here. Um, it might be getting warmer, but the Caps play is getting colder. So, um <laughs> It, that, that that's just what we've you know I, I like kevin i've been watching the games and just generally been kind of disappointed i don't know how many times we've been on this podcast over the last couple of months talking about uh it being a entertainment product and caps aren't playing a lot of entertaining hockey right now yeah and uh man the games uh lately have felt like a chore i know that we were talking right before this that watching capitals hockey really from you know December on, maybe even a little before that, I would say, the Capitals' play has just kind of been uninspired. So, Kevin, I know that you have much more defined thoughts on this because you've been writing up a storm for the site. So, uh, I don't know, what have kind of been your more recent impressions of the play and uh, kind of tease the uh, article that you've been, uh, that you were writing? Sure. Um, I mean, my impressions of their recent play are, are, that it's bad and that, that calling it bad is, is really an understatement. I think you could build a pretty strong case. And I think that I did, if you look on the site, got a piece up called the caps play It's poor, and we're going to talk about it. It didn't really bury the lead on that one. Um, I think you could argue that this is one of the worst stretches of play and certainly defensive play that we've seen um, since, you know, Glenn Hanlon, passed the torch to Bruce Boudreaux. So we're looking at, oh, 13, 14 years or so. Yeah. Um, and the, the rate at which they're allowing goals is just beyond anything that we've seen before and certainly sustained at this rate. Um, and it's it's sort of the second spike that we've seen like this under Todd Reardon. He had a similar one sort of at the beginning of last year. Uh, and now we're seeing it again. And... Uh, the the offensive production it's still there but it just can't account for the 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 futility of the of the defense right um and so that's that's really what i get into is sort of looking at what kind of game is happening out there on the ice um and it is just absolutely wide open uh in a way that sort of resembles some of the more um defensively ambivalent stretches of hockey under Bruce Boudreaux. Uh, but 
but the context is different now and and the personnel is different and the guys who were a part of both of those eras are are much older now and uh the the team can't win playing that kind of hockey and you know that's evidenced pretty thoroughly by the evaporation of their division lead in the standings um and that's really where we're at you know they're playing they're playing wide open loosey-goosey very little structure um and and at this point i think that we're all kind of just hoping that sure but this is just sort of a symptom of of uh mid to late season doldrums with with a playoff spot locked up and they'll flip the proverbial switch, which is a phrase that, you know, we're no stranger to as Capitals fans and talking about uh, trying to finish out a season strong after having a great first half of the season. Um, But that's really where we're at is historically bad defensive performance and offensive performance. That's generally fine, um, but just can't make up for it. Um, And then, you know, bad special teams, which, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, but I don't know. Have you, have you seen anything different than what I have, Adam? Uh, no, no, no. no I, I, I haven't really I, seen anything too, too different. I, I think the, the one thing is it's surprising um, just kind of how you'd expect this loosey goosey product to be a bit more entertaining to watch, right? We'd expect to see kind of uh, just, just a lot, I don't know if I just want to see more goals. It just, it just doesn't feel like the games have been particularly free-flowing. I'm definitely letting um, kind of the most recent Capitals game against Buffalo color my my analysis a little bit. I did think the game against Pittsburgh obviously was, was pretty great. But the, the Capitals, just their game doesn't feel cohesive to me. Um, I, I know we've seen defense kind of all year be a problem. Um, but but it's, just, it's just tough. And I, I know we're going to talk about the defensive pairings here coming up. But uh, guys that, you know, were playing really poorly are playing a bit better. And on the other side of things, guys that were playing great are now not so much. So, uh, Greg, I, I, I don't know. I, what, what am I missing here? I mean, Kevin did a great job kind of outlining it. But are, are you seeing visually like a team that's just playing this this loose, fast-paced version of hockey? Oh, yeah. And it's it's frustrating, too, because there are teams in the NHL, you think of maybe a Colorado, where – You'll watch it, they'll play a little loosey-goosey, but it's they're, they're constantly driving up and down the ice and generating you know, lots of shots and lots of goals. Whereas the Capitals' loosey-goosey play hasn't necessarily... I mean, you guys are right that the Capitals' offensive numbers look pretty good still, but at the same time, the play on the ice just hasn't been inspiring at all, and it's just been really hard games to watch them play, and... I, I, again, you know, like we're gonna have Buffalo on our minds because that was the most recent game. But I think it was it was striking because there's been a lot of games like this, a lot of games where the Capitals just haven't woken up until the third period. And yeah, you know, we talk about the switch a little bit and whether they can kind of turn it on or not. But I, at a certain point, you know, what do you just say that this is what the Capitals are right now, which is just a team that cannot play defense and you wonder systematically if something is wrong with them and just kind of their breakouts haven't looked particularly good they've just been kind of sloppy in the neutral zone and uh, you know I, I, I whether it's going to be you know that they're bored or whether they're waiting to flip a switch or not you know we're 10 11 games out of the playoffs if they haven't flipped it now they better do it freaking soon so you know I 
I think that it leads naturally to my next kind of question for you guys, which is uh, Todd Reardon. Um, there's been, I think, a lot of discussion on Twitter. I know all of our mentions are pretty full up with Reardon talk. So I guess the way I would ask this, Kevin, is you've written about you know Todd in the past, and we've kind of discussed Todd a lot on the site. Where are you right now in terms of Todd and, you know, one... Is this an acceptable time to remove a coach? There might be a piece that you wrote a couple of years ago that I'm hinting at a little bit here. But, you know, do you think now is an okay time to remove a coach? And is Reardon the root cause of this, or is it just the root cause that we don't know? You know, and Reardon maybe is an easy scapegoat. Yeah, it's it's honestly a really tough question for somebody like you or me to be able to answer um, in a complete way. And I say that because our understanding of a coach's dynamic is totally incomplete. So is so I think even with mainstream media who has a lot of access to the coach, um, it's, it's difficult to understand the effect on the room, a lot of the um, pieces of, of management that don't occur on, on the ice, right? That probably happen behind closed doors and in private conversations and stuff like that. Um, obviously, the, the other side of that is that accountability rolls uphill. You know, it's if things are going poorly, ultimately the coach's job is to, to iron it out and get it straight. Um, and this is a stretch of play that far... Uh, fails to, by far fails to meet expectations and the length of that stretch is to the point now where I think any coach would be kind of in a conventional way of thinking on the hot seat and I think that one of the there, there's many factors at play and maybe why you wouldn't make a change not least of which being it's late in the season and it's and it's rare to remove a coach this late in the season. Um, but you better make sure that you've got somebody who you think is going to give you a better chance than the guy that you have now. This is also Mac's first coach that he handpicked and, you know, walking away from him before two years is up is, is, is a pretty big, uh, a big admission of sort of missing the mark on, uh, on what you did the summer after, letting Barry Trotz walk in and winning the cup. Um, as for whether I think right now is an okay time to remove a coach, I absolutely do, if that's what you think that your move needs to be. You know, if you look at the um, sort of the guys who are available out there from outside the organization, names like Gerard Gallant, Bruce Boudreau, uh, Peter Laviolette, even Mike Babcock, um, you know, if you think that one of those guys is going to give you a better chance to win, um, and not to mention those coaches are interested in, in picking up a team right now and, and taking them into the playoffs, um, yeah, I think that you've got a responsibility to do it. I just think that it's not necessarily as cut and dry as all of that. Um, and, you know, I don't think that we should talk necessarily about this without mentioning JP's piece on um, sort of the – part of the nuance of Todd's transition here, which is that he was an assistant coach before he became a head coach. 
And those two roles have uh, a pretty different looking set of responsibilities. And, and more than that, sort of a pretty different um, like relationship texture with, with the players um, and frequently characterized as good cop versus bad cop. And it's got to be really hard to go from being in a position of, of being the friend, the guy who maybe you're, you're playing grab ass with when, uh, when the more disciplinarian head coach slowed his guard down a little bit. And then you're moving into a head coach role where you're the one who has to instill that discipline. Um, there's a lot of examples that JP provides about this happening to coaches in the past. Um, whether it was Mike Keenan's, replacement or whether it was scotty bowman's replacement i i their names slipped my mind right now which might be more to the point um but for our listeners i recommend that you go check that out um i think it's a, a reasoned nuanced look into um something that we haven't thought very much about when it comes to todd reardon and, and why he might be struggling in the role yeah. uh adam do you have any like additional thoughts no i, I think i think you did a great job there um i think the most interesting I do wonder about whether McClellan would feel like it is some sort of referendum on his own decision-making uh, if he got rid of Todd. Um, you know, you got to imagine it, 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 it was quite the thing for the Capitals to let um, Barry Trotz go after they won the Cup. And, uh, you know, there were, as we've discussed many times, Kevin, uh, lots of reports about Barry Trotz kind of being on the way out in Washington before they did win the Cup. And, uh, Maybe he's just uh, he he's reluctant to to let excuse me to let Todd go. So um, you just choked up. up about Todd Reardon. Oh, you know, I just <laughs> he just makes me so so happy. Yeah, uh, the, the way that he uh, takes a great team and has it produce mediocre results just excites me. Adam, I want to kind of toss a question, uh, kind of add a couple of variables to this too, and then kind of toss it back at you for a bit. Um, so I know that one of the things that we associate with, uh, you know, McClellan is the Reardon hire, but it seems like McClellan is pretty safe at this point, right? You know, he's made, I think, a number of, you know, solid contract investments. We look at stuff like the Lars Eller deal, you know, the uh, John Carlson contract looks pretty good in hindsight. Dubich Orlov, a lot of these trades, I think, have looked very good. So... You know, it seems like McClellan would be safe, which might say he could definitely survive a Reardon firing. Um, the other thing, too, being that I know that this kind of gets a little warped because the Capitals won a cup two years ago, but I, the Capitals' window to win a Stanley Cup is pretty much right now because they have a lot of players, you know, locked into deals that aren't maybe going to age as well as, you know, we say they will, you know, we look at a Nicholas Backstrom who, you know, I think is going to be in pretty good shape, but is he going to be worth 9.1 million in three years? I don't know, you know, probably not. Ovechkin's going to be, you would think in some kind of decline at that point. So it would seem like now would be a good kind of window to maximize the Capitals, you know, potential to win a Stanley Cup. So adding those two variables in, do you think that could kind of swing things at all with whether they should keep it or not? And Kevin, if you want to, you can chime in as well. I mean, I, I certainly think if I was McClellan, my, my first thought would be, do I think Todd Reardon is capable of pushing the right buttons and making the correct adjustments 
to get this team, uh, you know, to a championship. And, you know, he's only had one shot at doing these playoff adjustments before, has Reardon. And, uh, you know, it, he didn't do particularly well, in my, in my opinion. Granted, it was just one series. Um, if I, because if I'm wrong, I'm not worried at all about my job. I, I would be astounded if anything happened to him. It, it's, it's hard for, you know, he's been around for a little bit now and I had to really think about, okay, what were his, what deals has he made that didn't pan out? What, what you know, what, which trades did he make that he clearly lost? And you know, that that's, there aren't that many. I mean, right. We, you can talk about maybe the Kevin Shattenkirk deal, but that was, again, that was the right move to make at the time. You mm-hmm. can look at the Andre Burakovsky trade. Maybe that one, uh, didn't Gutis work out. Niskin but, doesn't have the greatest hindsight these days either, but yeah. No, but, but again, it's hard to look at that logic and in, in real time and say, yep, that was, that was flawed. I mean, Niskanen was coming off of a very bad year and he was an aging player. Um, so I, I think that's the, the, the chief question that I'd be trying to answer is, is Todd able to get this team over the hump? And if the answer is no, it's time to move on. It doesn't matter when it is during the season or anything like that. If I'm convinced that he can't do it, I need to try to find someone else who can. And Kevin has already outlined for us uh, kind of the great options that are available. Yeah. Um, All right. Oh, go ahead, Kevin. Oh, I was just going to say, I'll believe that the Caps window is closing when I've been seeing when I, when I see it. It's one of those things that we've been saying for years and years. But then, you know, Ovi scores fifty goals every year, and Baxter puts up a load of points. And yeah, they're getting older, and uh, just logic would lead you to believe that the window's closing. But I don't know; it still seems relatively open to me at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, one thing that is definitely in decline, although I think you can kind of debate a couple of different elements of it, is the Capitals special teams. And really since, I think, February, or really since December, the power play has been a mess. And it's something that we've talked about on this podcast. And I have been seeing a couple of different articles basically suggesting that the Capitals power play might just need some are are more than just a tweak or two away that there might be something more systemically wrong with it. And I think when we think of systemic problems, I don't I wouldn't just counsel people to say, "Oh, once they get into the zone, they're fine and they have, you know, the magic passes and everything like that." I think a system for power play is as much how you get in the zone and how you generate chances off of zone entries as it is anything else. And I just haven't seen any adjustments that the Capitals can have made so far that have done really anything to slow that tide. And I'm wondering whether, you know, they need to vary up the neutral seam or potentially think about systemically changing the personnel on the power play. The problem being that there's not a super clear avenue or player to add that would instantly make it better. You know, they've switched... Uh, Vrana in with Kuznet or Kuznetsov in with Vrana, but there doesn't seem like there's one magic fit here. So I don't know, Kevin, where are you on, you know, the Capitals power play? Do you think there's something maybe broader wrong with it? Or do you think they could still be maybe a tweak or two away from seeing maybe not a top one or two power play, but something that could still be in the top five or 10 and still win them games? 
Yeah, I have trouble thinking that there's anything like irrevocably broken simply because what we're more or less looking at is the same power play that has been um, proficient to or to the up to the top of the league for year after year after year under Blaine Forsyth. Um, and they haven't really changed a whole lot there, right? It's sort of like um, either Carlson bombs it from the point, slides it over to Ovi if he's open, uh, or that little bump set play down with Osh finishing. And that's gotten the job done, and it's not now. And what I think has changed more than anything is the way that the penalty kills are playing the power play. Um, something that we marveled at for a long time was, wow, why aren't these penalty killers putting more pressure on the puck carrier? The, you know, we anecdotally observed that um, our puck carriers tended to cough the puck up, not necessarily make a smart pass under pressure, um, and, and then the puck would get cleared out of the zone. And I've seen that happening a lot more from the penalty killers uh, on this back half of the season, certainly during this whatever it is, like a three for 29 stretch or something that they're having. Um, but the, that, that's when they're in the zone. When they're out of the zone, it's about the zone entries. And those have been god-awful yes. um, to, to the point where I've noticed on more than one occasion them – fail to get in through their slingshot or through some, you know, milk toast pass through the neutral zone that, that a defender gets a stick on and the puck goes, goes awry. Um, they'll just skate it up and dump it in and go fetch it. And, uh, you know, you got, you got five guys on the ice. They got four right now. Those odds are better than them actually executing a, like a cogent zone entry. Um, and I'm not, not a big X's and O's guys guy. So, I, I don't really have a, uh, a solution to recommend there. Um, but there's problems on both the entry and once they're in the zone, in my opinion. Um, but, to, I mean, like I said, I, I still have to think that it, it doesn't require an overhaul. It doesn't require a complete redesign. Um, I don't think something that works that well for that long with um, pretty similar personnel just breaks overnight. Adam, what do you, what do you think? Yeah, I think teams are playing the Capitals a bit differently. Uh, I don't necessarily think the Capitals are doing anything differently. Um, we, we see the Ovechkin-Carlson um, kind of swap at the point now more than we did maybe a year or two ago. Um, I personally feel like that we've seen the bump set that you mentioned earlier generally be a little bit less effective than we had seen in the past. And, um, you know, Backstrom's not quite shooting the same as he was before, um, in my opinion. Not that he was ever a real high-volume shooter, but we're, it, he's almost just like a non-threat over on that side of the ice right now on the power play. So um, I, th- I think it, it really is interesting how they've been dumping the puck in more on the power play. At least that's visually what it's looked like. I'm not totally sure that um, Blaine Forsythe has a real uh, trick up his sleeve, a, a real wrinkle to add. Um, but I remember kind of thinking the same thing heading into the playoffs in 2018 because I thought, well, maybe teams always do better against the Capitals power play in the playoffs because, you know, they're scouting it more. Um, they are more aggressive with it. But the Capitals power play, again, this is anecdotally, I thought was very successful in the 2018 playoffs. So maybe they do have a trick up their sleeve uh, again this year as we kind of head into that exciting time of the year. So. That, that's all I've really got on the power play. Um, I, I would like to see kind of Jacob Rana, Genny Kuznetsov, and Nicholas Backstrom 
do a bit more when they're on the ice uh, on that right side. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to take a break. On the other side, we're going to talk about the defensive pairs a little bit more, ask the question we are all dying to ask, which is, is Nick Jensen good again? Um, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about Carlson and the Norris, and we'll talk about the bottom six. So uh, stay tuned. Welcome back to Japers Rink Radio. Still joined here by Adam and Kevin. And Kevin, we were talking a bit off mic about the Capitals defensemen and uh, defensive pairings. And specifically, it seems like as one goes up, the other goes down. So as John Carlson maybe has been struggling a little bit recently, although I I think we're still going to be arguing for him to get the Norris because, you know, points and everything. It seems like Nick Jensen's been playing a lot better. So kind of what have you been seeing with Adam Jensen lately? And uh, where are you kind of at on his play versus a couple of months ago? I mean, he's he's clearly improved. And it's one of those things where, uh, the eye test and the analytics are matching, right? Um, his expected goals for is jumping up and his expected goals down is, is plummeting, uh, which is all great. And if this truly represents the new normal for Nick Jensen, it's it's hard to imagine a bigger windfall for the Caps, right? Uh, if this is the real Jensen, the Caps have as satisfying a top four from a personnel standpoint that you could have hoped for um, you know, based on this group, given their general lackluster performance over the course of the year, throw in the fact that Orlov's defensive performance has also improved in his shared minutes with Jensen. Mm-hmm. And that, that improvement from that pair has happened at a time when we've seen the opposite from pretty much the rest of the team. Uh, it, it's a really good sign and, and maybe is an indication that those guys should be playing your top minutes right every night and and if you look at the the time on ice charts from uh the last couple weeks of games or so you see more and more that jensen and orlov are getting more time as a pair than carlson and dylan um i'd say that jensen slotting in in that top four and performing well there also has the added benefit of allowing you to shelter michael kempney in the bottom six and kempney whether it's because of injury or whether it's something else He's playing well below what we've come to expect of him. Um, and, and you know, that's probably the best spot for him to try to get him right. Um, and, you know, even with Kempney playing the way he is, as far as I'm concerned, he still represents a more dependable player than Radko Gudis, who has basically bottomed out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, is this for real with Jensen? I don't know. I almost think that it's a little bit too good to be true um but honestly even if he falls somewhere between where we're seeing now and uh and what we saw for a good portion of the season leading up to this stretch um you know any improvement is is a good thing in my book adam any additional thoughts on on jensen and the d in general oh i i love how jensen he's just been more aggressive with the puck i feel like he's almost looked kind of uh similar to how orlov's willing to jump up on offense i think we've seen a lot of that recently out of jensen um, I didn't see it coming from him. I kind of thought he he's a dud, but he he's looked really good. Um, my other general thought on defense is I don't know what's been going on with John Carlson, but when he's not putting up the points, he does not look good. Uh, I, I don't I don't know if points were blinding me to to his play. I thought he I thought he looked good defensively earlier in the year. He looks fucking he looked, cool. It's not washed. Looks like a fucking garbage fire. Yeah, he looks like Jeff Schultz, dude. He looks like a pylon out there. All right, he's getting walked. Um, 
I mean, every time I think about John Carlson, I'm just seeing Malkin dangle through him in my in my head. Um, but I mean, his, his play's just kind of been like that. It's, it's been like that. I feel like for the last couple of months, he's making bad decisions with the puck. Uh, I don't really feel like he's doing a lot on the power play. Just just all in all, I think John Carlson's really hurt his candidacy. Um, you know, when uh, we we kind of talked about this previously. Um, I think it might have been Greg, JP, and I. It was. I, I thought that Carlson was going to have to have an, a solid second half to to win the Norris, just because um, you know recency bias is is definitely a thing when it comes to Norris voting, and, and I think it's going to be really hard for him given how he's played right now. I, I don't know if he's really been a Norris Trophy quality guy over the last uh, couple of months. Yeah, I mean he might he might be benefiting from the fact that. Dougie Hamilton seemed like he was kind of in the second slot there, and he's been out for three months now. So you almost wonder if uh, Carlson might just win it by default as, you know, kind of he was clearly in the lead at the start of the year. And then I think if he had started the year playing like this, I would have questioned, you know, whether he was even in like the top five for Norris voting. But I, you wonder if maybe just kind of inertia and momentum will just kind of carry him through the last 10 games or so. But yeah, and I think the, the numbers that you guys cited in terms of defensive usage is really revealing as to who Reardon really thinks is his uh, top, you know, top four defenseman. And I wonder too, we talk about Jensen and Orlov kind of being, you know, potentially used as a, almost a shutdown pair in a way. And I'm wondering what the ramifications are kind of down in the lineup. So Kevin, I know that you talked a little bit about this just now, but kind of go in depth. What does this, what does this mean for the rest of the capitals and maybe how they would deploy uh, Dylan and Carlson and uh, whether they shelter Kepney or Gudis or, you know, Kepney or Siegenthaler or something kind of what is, what is Jensen and Orlov maybe turning into a shutdown pair mean for the capitals and how can Reardon best use it? Uh, I, I mean, I think that it get it ensures that John Carlson isn't really on the ice against the the opposition's most potent offensive weapons. I think that's the biggest thing that you get. Um, and then alternatively, what it means is that you're probably getting John Carlson out in situations where maybe his skill set can um, be more front and center. You know, he's he's great offensively, not so great defensively. Um, so if he's out there against guys who are going to be, you know, opposing forwards who are going to be driving play a little bit less effectively than some of the competition he's used to seeing, I could see that being potentially a good thing. Um, and then, you know, with Gudis, I mentioned it's about sheltering and, and that's really what I, I think it is, is about um, eating some of the easier minutes, being proficient in them Um keeping the ice time of, of the, the top four down as, as much as possible. But then, uh, you know, when the rubber meets the road, um, you don't mind all that much letting, letting Siegs and, and Kempney be the, the guys who are losing TOI off their box score. So Kevin, um, I know that we've kind of talked a little bit about the Capitals defensive pairs a little bit, but focusing specifically on Carlson and his Norris case, kind of where are you at? I know that you've written a piece about Carlson and the Norris kind of where, where are you at on Carlson's Norris case? Yeah. I mean, I think that the question as to whether John Carlson is the best defenseman in the NHL and whether 
John Carlson deserves the Norris for better or worse are two very different conversations. Um, we've got a lot of precedent in terms of looking at the sort of the profile of the Norris winners over the course of, I looked at the last 14 years, 13 years, dating back to 2007 when um, Nicholas Lidstrom won. And the reality is John Carlson has about as strong a case as you could hope for based on the voting histories that we've seen in effect over the course of the last 13 years. I mean, he's, you rarely see somebody who is so thoroughly outpacing the field when it comes to points. And I know, or points at the position of defenseman. Um, and I know that people at large, hockey fans at large, want a more nuanced understanding of like what makes the, a best defenseman in the league. And we've seen that a few times uh, back in 2015, 2016, Drew Doughty wasn't necessarily, um, I think he was like maybe the, the 12th or 13th highest scoring defenseman that year. Um, and Eric Carlson was at the top and, and he had, he was sort of robbed uh, from that trophy. Sort of the same conversation that we're having now around John Carlson, I think there um, where, one player clearly had the better offensive production, but there's an idea around that person's defensive abilities that ultimately swayed the vote. Um, and of course, the other two examples Caps fans are going to be familiar with, with Mike Green losing out in 2008-2009, as well as 2009-2010. Um, but the it's it's just so stark, the the difference. And you can see... Um, some some visualizations that sort of highlight this. If you go look at that post, if you're if you're listening and you want to check it out, which people should definitely do, by the way. <laughs> it's called "Is John Carlson's Case for the Norris Trophy Airtight," um, and it's a couple weeks old at this point. But generally speaking, you know everything everything stands. Um, and the i the idea that Roman Yossi, who is probably Carlson's biggest competition um, for that vote is having a better defensive year stands um, for sure. But, you know, I, I think that there, the way that people evaluate defensive play is a lot less inexact than the way that they evaluate offensive output, which tends to be just points, uh, goals, and assists when it comes to these awards. And so my, my argument is that unless there's a pretty significant change in, in what the voters consider the criteria for this award, uh, John Carlson has a, a pretty clear case for it. Um, and I'd, I'd also point out that at the beginning of, or excuse me, at the, in the middle of the year, the PHWA, the Pro Hockey Writers Association, kind of does an exercise where they vote on the trophies at the mid-year point. And they voted John Carlson. John Carlson, the Norris winner at that point, I wouldn't say all that much has changed um, between now and then. Yeah. And if nothing else, give the guy the trophy as a, uh, as a, a, a mulligan. For, uh, <laughs> Ice cream. <laughs> you, can, you can invite him on stage and have him share it with him. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know what? If giving John Carlson the, the Norris trophy is a, is a travesty and a, and a stain 
on the sanctity of that honor, then <laughs> at least it's one that goes in Caps fans' favor for once. There you go. I mean, so he's got to be better than uh, Leon Dreisaitl, who, according to one source, is uh, not even a top 30 to 50 NHL player. So there we go. Well, um, uh, exactly. Kevin, who's more deser- deserving of the Norris? Is it this year's John Carlson, or is it the Mike Green of the past? <laughs> um, I'm going to say the Mike Green of the past. I mean, that guy scored 30 goals in a season for a defenseman, which – uh, I don't think it's been done in like 30 years or something like yeah. that. Um, and, and Carlson's got the, the point total, which I think is going to be one of the highest in like the last 25 years by a defenseman. Um, but goals are so hard for defensemen to come by and, and to put up 30 like that. I mean, that, I think that, that wins the, uh, that honor for me. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm in the same boat with the, and I'll add another element to it too. The the stuff about Mike Green's defense was always kind of bull bullpucky because you know he, I, I think he got a lot of well he's an offensive defenseman and so you know we're gonna notice and zoom in on every defensive mistake. Whereas I think this year John Carlson has been legitimately bad defensively at times. You know, and so I think that that's another kind of element to add to it as well. I don't know what the hell bullpuck he is, but definitely agree that yeah. Mike Green was a great defenseman. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, uh, with that, we're going to call a wrap on uh, this episode of Japers and Radio. Uh, Adam and Kevin, uh, Kevin first, where can people find your stuff? Because you've been, you've been active lately. Yeah, I have been. Don't act so surprised. Um... <laughs> well, I mean, just comparing to, the, to, to me and Adam, who, uh, you know, we, uh, we need to step it up a little bit. At least I do, Adam. I know that you have uh, you're you're moving and have had life events, so I guess you you get a pass. But I do I do not, so I need to do more. But Kevin, you've done stuff, so uh, so where where can people find your work and uh, all of your various musings? Yeah, sure. So um, for my work, you know, you know about JaypersRink.com. If you're really? here, make <laughs> sure you're tuning in as we sort of enter the stretch to the postseason here it's all the site's always a great resource for uh for a caps community even as somebody who is is behind the scenes on it um as for me following me in hockey and occasionally other musings um at sick unbelievable um put it in the search bar and you'll find me there you go and uh adam where can people find your stuff uh at stringham a on twitter uh, if I ever write, you'll see me on japerdrink.com, but, uh, I wouldn't hold your breath, Yeah. but, but, you know, inspiration can always strike me. Uh, you know, nothing like poor play to get the good old creative juices. Flowing. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And, uh, you can find me at Greg Y underscore JR and my stuff also with Japers rank. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of it. Japers rank radio. If you enjoy the show, please rate, write, subscribe, review, and stay tuned uh, next week.